Year Wow. Welcome to This Year Wow, brought to you in part by Jen Schulte, real estate broker with Century 21 Millennium Inc. Brokerage. The Jen Schulte team, leading you home. This Year Wow is a podcast dedicated to highlighting entirely exceptional people, places, and things found right here, right under our noses in South Georgian Bay. I'm Dean Holland. The lucky so-and-so charged with the exceedingly pleasurable task of pulling that all together, right here, each week, from the comfort of Studio 11. If you hadn't noticed the signs already, this past week has made it pretty darn difficult to ignore. That big, beautiful change coming our way. Spring. The snow is receding. The temps are getting milder. Wee little green heads are starting their poke up through the soil in certain parts of the garden pushing things even further in that direction, seemingly accelerating the process, is the springing forward of our clocks, a typically welcomed ritual this time of year. From where I reside, I have a rather clear view of the escarpment, and at present, the intermittent ski runs. And I have to tell you that it regularly strikes this fella as a sight to behold. Each season gives that beloved escarpment an entirely different personality, offering different activities to different people with different bents. Once again, the escarpment is transitioning, and I do enjoy witnessing that happenstance. I have always lived on and around the escarpment, the first 30-odd years of my life in the Hamilton area, residing on both its upper and lower portions, and now in the last 18 years or so on its lower, with my sights constantly drawn upwards. Either way, it offers some breathtaking views. It truly is a wow, in my humble opinion. Now, one of the wows on this week's show will be about exactly what I've just been chatting about, that wonderful escarpment. Well, a particular portion of it, anyway. Additionally, I'll be talking to an artist from the southern portion of SGB, well, the the east end of SGB as well. And, And much of that conversation will be regarding another of the huge features of our area, the water. And then there's this musician, not just a musician, but an educator, He's exceptional at both, to be sure. And here's the thing. I wouldn't be entirely out of line by saying that for years, this fella's been stringing kids along. Let's get this show going. This here, this here, this here, wow. If you regard Derek McLean as being strange, it is for sure only due to his longtime association with that local musical trio, The Strange Potatoes, along with John Eaton and John Miller. But truly, there's not a strange bone in his body. What he is, is a talented musician, as well as exactly the sort of school teacher that so many of us would have truly loved to have in our senior elementary years. A bit over a decade ago, my fandom towards Derek grew drastically when while attending a poetry contest that I was a judge for at Wasaga Beach Elementary School, I passed his classroom. Now, what I saw, and the explanation he offered regarding what I saw, made me a bigger fan than I ever thought possible. I was thinking about when I first met you through your work with the Strange Potatoes. Yeah. um, When I first came to town, which is almost 20 years ago now. Holy Um, cow. Yeah. But then my next recollection of you when you really kind of wowed me was, um, was it the Dunes? Yeah, Birchview Dunes. Yeah, Birchview Dunes. And I remember I was there helping to judge a poetry contest. And I ran into you and I saw your classroom. And it was all these guitars hanging on the walls. And then we, <laughs> I thought that was 
fantastic. So this is why I, I wanted to reach out to you. I just want you to tell me about the guitars and talk about this program that you... Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I ran it at Birchview Dunes for about uh, nine or 10 years. And probably when I saw you, that was probably in the early days of it, because yeah. that was a long time ago with that mm -hmm. poetry competition. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was already teaching music there, and I just wasn't happy with what I was doing. And uh, there were some xylophones kicking around. Um, I mean, you could always do thing, base, some basic things like bucket drumming. Yeah. And as, as you know, guitar is sort of my passion in terms of an instrument. Indeed. And so just on a whim... I walked into the principal's office and asked for a bit of uh, a bit of her time and said, uh, tell me what you think about this, about this idea. I had already priced it out from a couple of stores, uh, a store in Barrie, a store in Collingwood and the Collingwood store. I mean, it was Jim Smith at the time and uh, Blue Mountain Music. And he was yes. just willing to offer a really sweet deal on a per guitar basis with a tuner and uh, a bunch of picks and extra strings and such. And the principal said, give me, give me a couple days. I think she ran it by sort of parents council to see if they would support it partially. And uh, two days later, she, she gave me the thumbs up. And within a week, we had 30 acoustic guitars arrive at the school and uh, six rotary classes coming through to learn guitar. 28, 30 kids at a time, which is a bit of a gong show in terms yeah. of... <laughs> There's a reason. There's a reason why most guitar lessons are one-on-one. -on -one, right? um, so the idea of the program was really just to give the kids a taste of an instrument that they might love, and so it was an easy sell. Dean, I mean, uh, out of thirty kids, I'd say on any given class, like twenty-seven of them were keen, keen to play, just because it's a, it's an accessible instrument. They it's recognizable. They love it. They, the the yeah. music that you can play with it is in their wheelhouse. So that was an easy sell. Yeah. So how the heck do you, how do you start? What's day one like? And, and let's, what, let's establish what grade level we're talking. I, I seem to recall grade eight. Set, grade sevens and eights at Birchview. Sevens and eights. Yeah. But how I can't even imagine day one with 30 oh. novice guitar players. Oh, day day one the number of strings that got broken in that first month was incredible <laughs> all right and and trying to teach the kids how to how to tune them yeah uh and make sure that they stayed in tune that was an important part because you needed to sound good so i mean <clears throat> the first couple of lessons were were really just sort of string names and uh maybe trying to how to get a clear note out of the fretboard, just even in terms of how to hold the guitar right. and how to, how to press on the string and actually get it to have a clear note. You're a piano player. And so you, uh, I'm one not of the best... actually, no, I'm <laughs> no? just a singer, just a plain old singer. <laughs> okay. I thought, I thought you played piano. Yeah, for sure. No, no, I always, <laughs> I always bring in stellar piano players. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the great things about a piano is you could take a four-year-old up to a piano and say, press that key right. and boom, out comes a clear note. Like a, gotcha. a four-year-old pressing the key is the same as a 20-year-old pressing the key. You just get a nice clear note. So uh, with, with the guitar though, it's not a clear note that you get because it, it does require you pushing the string so that it touches the fret. And so anyway, bottom line is those first few days, it was getting the kids to play clear notes and then it was super, it seemed like it was super important to be able to get them to play something that they recognized. 
And so there were, I would pick sort of quick little easy riffs or melodies, some of them old classic ones that they might have, uh, have heard before, but I'd try to pick some newer songs that they were listening to and even just get the, a little taste of that melody of that song. If it was like a current sort of top 40 pop song and recognizable to them, that was the selling point. And they'd want to play that melody just on one string at first. Yeah. Right. So it's just single string melodies. Believe it or not, even to this day, Smoke on the Water is still a, a very recognizable really? indie riff that the kids know and want to learn for, dun, for whatever dun, reason. Dun, 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 dun. Is that the part they know? Yeah. That's the part. Wow. That's the part. <laughs> and how many notes are we talking there? Dun, dun, dun. Are we, is it like three? Uh, four notes four overall notes. to play that riff. You need a wow. grand total of four notes. Yeah. Yeah. You're doing it now. You're not at the Dunes anymore, but you you still do this program, right? Yeah, I switched to Cameron Street School four years ago, okay. and uh, and they were they they were familiar with the program that I ran at Bridgeview okay. Dunes, and they jumped on it. Like they were without hesitation. We started. It took a little bit longer. It wasn't sort of thirty guitars all at once. It was yeah. a bit more spread out. But we started with six or eight, and uh, started to use them a bit. And I brought some from my house, and some of the kids would bring them from their houses as well. And we had some ukuleles and then uh, every few months or so, the principal would okay a few more. And now we're up to, we're up to 28 or 29 now. Fabulous. So I was going to say the thing that I recall, not only did you have all those guitars, but they all lined the perimeter of your classroom. They were all hung up on the, on the wall. Yes. So that's, that's the, I've got the same type of setup at uh, Cameron street as well. Now with it, with with it being a COVID year, We've had to move our music classes into the library for a variety of reasons, just okay. so, because you can't have these the different cohorts overlapping. Right. So uh, the the wood shop at CCI built me <clears throat> for for now anyway just these long uh, carts that hold about ten guitars, and they're on wheels, and you can so you can take them to a right. room if you need to. But uh, but I do still have that set up in my classroom where the guitars hang on the wall like a music store, and it's uh, nice. It always catches people's eyes yeah. when they're walking by this. They, they're, they poke their heads in people that hadn't been to the school before. And they say, oh, yeah. what is this room? What's going yeah. on in here? <laughs> no, it's, it's, there's a magic to it. There's a magic to it. And I guess, I mean, you as a performer and you obviously, you, you now say as a teacher, COVID has changed the program. Yes. Yeah. So the, yes. the, the kids still get to play, but how are you, how are you working that now? So they haven't been able to play since before the winter break, but when we were back at school starting in September, so we, and we missed that big pocket of learning on the guitar as well from, uh, well, from March break last year until the end of the school year, the kids didn't set foot in the school. So that was kind of gone. So September, we didn't get the initial go ahead to start guitars. So I did uh, a month or so of drumming and, um, and then starting in October, we got the we got the go ahead to use the guitars with certain types of cleaning and getting the strings so that multiple kids could use the same instrument. Of course. Right. So that, that's been tricky. It's mm-hmm. been tricky. And when you factor in all of that, I'm basically looking at about 30 minutes a week for a class of 30 kids. Right. So that's not really I'd love to have way more time, but that's the way it's scheduled for now. Yeah, for now. And norm, normal years, what I do is I run a, a school band um, after school that has a whole bunch of guitar players, a whole bunch of singers, a cajon drummer, 
mm-hmm. keyboards, ukuleles, bass guitar. And uh, that's when you get a, the kids that are really keen on it. And they that's you see their learning curve just go through the roof because they now they've got a goal. They know that there's a, a couple of performances that will be happening. So those kids are in. Yeah, I'll bet you see a lot of kids that are in. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What a great age to start this at. Yeah, and the the idea of them being in a band, I think, is the is the easy sell, right? Because now they, it's practicing an instrument on your own. It's not that riveting without some other type of a buy-in, without either a, a, a gig in mind, or even if it's just accountability to your bandmates. You know what I mean? You, mm-hmm. you can't show up. You know that there's going to be another band rehearsal on Thursday after school. Well you need to be ready for it. You, yeah. you can't show up and not be ready. So that's really motivating for a lot of the kids. Too. Now, when, when, how old were you when you started? Do you remember when you started playing? I was, uh, I think, 13. I think I was kind of grade eight. Yeah, about the same age. I picked it up, yeah. Well, and uh, I was in a band within the first couple of months, and we were awful. <laughs> oh, <laughs> everybody was just starting, right? We had a yeah. drummer, we had a couple of electric guitarists, and... And wow, were we bad. We knew two songs. We did uh, Wild Thing. By the oh, Trot. yeah. We were more the Jimmy Hen. We were trying to get the Jimi Hendrix version going. Okay. And Can't Explain by The Who. Oh. And, uh, both yeah. kind of three chord songs. Yep. And uh, oh, we, we played. And can be loud. Yeah. <laughs> it can just yeah. be loud. Oh, I, think, I think what you've done is tremendous. And I, I thank you for on behalf of the community um, and like good on you and uh, i'm oh. sure the kids are having a good time and i hope that well with any luck this uh uh the with the, the covid stuff will clear up enough yeah that you can get back to having uh regular music sessions in your classroom i can't wait to get that there'll be a rebuilding chunk of time for sure because uh it's when you really get the momentum of the sevens and then they become eights and if they played it all the way through and maybe join the band that's when you really see it pay off for them yeah Cheers. Well, thanks so much, Derek. My pleasure, Dean. Good to see you. You too. Yeah. So a talented musician, a passionate educator going the extra mile, a family man who's a really nice guy and good looking to boot. You know, I'm just going to punch him right in the face the next time I see him. (laughs) Seriously, it is that sort of individual that makes SGB a whole bunch better. If you go to the This Year Wow podcast with Dean Holland Facebook page, I've made available some photos that Derek provided showing all those guitars we chatted about, along with some other info about Derek and his music. This here, wow. A great many of us residents of SGB, most of us probably, make every effort to be close to the water at some time or another. Some live very close to it, others visit it regularly. Whatever the case, it does seem to be good for our souls, doesn't it? In the case of local artist Sue A. Miller, It is not only good for her soul, but it's part of her art. I met Sue a number of years back while co-hosting a locally produced television morning show and recall her as being somewhat reserved, passionate, and driven, and a wonderfully talented artist of the canvas. When I think of Sue, I also think Cremor. But it's become substantially more than that over the years since last we connected. Uh, South Georgian Bay girl through and through. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I have. I definitely gravitate to the water. 
um, it's kind of this interesting relationship, which is why I think it, it shows up in my work all the time is I, I've always, I grew up on the water and I've, I've lived near Georgian Bay for my adult life. And then of course the East coast. Uh, so, but I have also this sort of deep respect and fear <laughs> of water as well. So it's that, that conflict, that contradiction that it shows up in my work. Even if I try not to do water, it always ends up in my paintings. I looked through some of your uh, some of your work, and uh, things like uh, Kawartha Wetland jumped out mm-hmm. at me. Another one I loved was Sitting in Silence, oh, and uh, yeah. they're just lovely, lovely pieces. And you can absolutely see that water is a big part of your inspiration. Yeah, it is. It, it's um, it's definitely been my focus for the last uh, several years um, and predominantly sort of the the abstract uh, aspects of water. So, you know, a lot of the paintings are recognizable as, you know, landscapes and water reflection, but I'm, I'm sort of moving more into the abstract with just trying to get the, the feeling of depth and, and reflection and movement and transparency. That's what jumped out at me with those two pieces that I mentioned was the reflection. I loved that, that as you say, the depth and the reflection. It was mm-hmm. very, very evident to me in, in your pieces. Well, I think a lot of people, you know, uh, they have this this memory, this primal memory of water and, and everybody gravitates to water, at least most people I know do. And so that abstract quality, even though it's not literally recognizable, you know, the audience sort of recognizes it at a deeper level and it's got that familiar primal feeling to it, I think. At least that's that's what I'm hoping for. Primordial Waters. Yes. was the name of one of your shows. Um, so that one, that one actually in, was inspired when I first moved to Wasega Beach and the, being so close to the shoreline and just uh, seeing it in all seasons. And it was really quite impactful. I, I hadn't, up until that point, hadn't spent a ton of time on, on the beach. And um, anyway, so I, it took several years for that to come together because I wanted to, I wanted it to be more than just a two-dimensional painting, you know, visual experience. I wanted it to be an immersive experience. I wanted people to feel what I felt. And so I spent years, several years collecting detritus from the beach. I recorded uh, the sounds from the beach at different times of the day and different seasons. Um, So there were sounds of geese flying over. There were sounds of the spring peepers and, you know, other, just other natural sounds, the waves, of course. And then what ended up happening was I, I pulled all that together and I did my first installation so it was not just paintings it was a a three-dimensional sculpture uh, created with uh, snake grass reeds and then the recorded sounds on top of that and then there was also a little bit of um, video as well and it all came together and I first showed it at the BMFA in Collingwood and we also had a group show I curated a a group of artists to sort of complement what what I had done And then it moved from there to the Museum of Dufferin 
and then we had a final uh, exhibit and it was pared down a bit more. It was um, my installation. And then we had uh, three other artists do a group show to complement it. And that was exhibited at the Aurelia Museum of Art and History. Good for you. And, I, and there's a, a great little video on your website that I, uh, it's about two and a half minutes, I think. And yeah. it uh, sort of encapsulates and you can hear the sounds. And, and, and the one thing that I didn't know about you is the installations because I thought of you solely as a painter yeah and all of a sudden these installations a lot of driftwood and grass yeah that was my first installation and and I I don't know <laughs> what what I was thinking I just knew that I I needed to do something more than painting to really get this feeling across of of how impactful I felt like the the experience was for me when I first moved there and so I just decided I, I need to do something different. It has to be more than just a, a two-dimensional experience. And uh, so I started playing with it. And like I said, it was a learning curve. It took a lot of experimenting because I'd never, I'd never done anything like that before. And, and even just the logistics of how do I build this sculpture? How do I dismantle it and store it and, and transport it and all of that? comes into play right it's not just the the creative side it's how do how do I actually make this work <laughs> mm -hmm. so well it seems it, to seems to me from what I saw you made it work well thank you <laughs> it was it, I, I felt good about it and I felt good about just the whole entire show with my work and my other um, artists that that contributed to the exhibit as well. It was, and it was well received. And uh, I actually have another one in the works. Um, this one's going to take a little bit longer because uh, there's been delays due to COVID, but um, I'm going to, I'm working on an ice project that will be also another immersive experience, but I think Great. that's a couple of years down the road still. Yeah. But that's, a, that's a really nice road to be on. Yeah. It's very, um, I don't know what the word is. It, it's about connection for me. I, I want people to feel and, and experience nature the way I do and the way I think is healthy to experience it. You know, we, we've, we have such a disconnection or I shouldn't speak for everybody, but I think, the, you know, with the huge populations living in urban centers, you, you lose that, that connection to nature. And um, it's so important. It's so important for your mental well-being, but it's important for the environment and our, our future existence. So to me, that's what it's all about. It's about reconnecting with nature at a very spiritual, deep level. And I think that, you know, painting can do it. Music can do it. Just being out in nature can do it. But if you can't get out in nature, but you could experience uh, you know, a, an art experience like that, something immersive that can actually transport you there. Um, I think that that's, that's a really great thing. It sounds fantabulous to me. I was going to ask you, you mentioned earlier that you felt a little bit thwarted by the whole COVID thing. Many of us have, many artists yeah. have, and we've talked a lot about pivoting. So how, like, do you feel you're on the, on the upswing now? I, I do. Yeah. I feel uh, yeah, it, it sort of cut me off at my knees. Like I just, you know, emotionally was devastated by what was going on. But also the fact that, you know, there's no more in-person gallery shows. I had some uh, gallery shows already booked that got canceled. 
and this ice project that I was talking about, there was a trip planned to the Arctic um, that's been canceled. And so my, my motivation and my, you know, that whole get up and go and reason for creating was just like gone. <laughs> Um, I need, I'm a very kind of goal oriented person. I need to have an end game and a goal I, to really stay motivated. So anyway, I've just sort of pushed through it and, and I do feel like things are starting to happen again and, uh, just getting back on track. And I think a lot of artists, you know, feel the same way. It's just, it's the, ex a lot of the excitement is gone when you can't show your work publicly you can't interact personally with other artists or collectors and um, people that like your work gallery owners like that's part of the whole package deal that that creates motivation and drive sure it's like uh, for me as an entertainer you do you, you you do the rehearsing the building the costumes and all that and the prize at the end is the audience and right, right now we don't have that no. And I think, you know, there's been, obviously there's virtual exhibit exhibitions, which I have a couple of those, but it's not the same. You know, I think the virtual experience of art is so lacking in experience than when you can actually see something in person or experience a play in person, right? It's mm -hmm. just not the same as watching TV. <laughs> no, no, right? it isn't the same. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, until we can do that again, what, what is the best way to see your work. Okay, so Instagram is where I'm probably most active. Um, you can follow me. It's at Sue A. Miller Art. Don't forget the A because there is another artist with the same name. Um, and then, of course, my website. Uh, but I update Instagram more than I update my website. And I do have um, I have a virtual exhibition starting Thursday this week through. Um, it's called Artwork dot ca and that's a r t w r k dot ca and then i have a in-person exhibit actually i'm quite excited about this at a new gallery in stroud and it's called the b contemporary gallery and eventually you know if people want to come and visit in Creemore at the studio they can do that uh, right now we're just doing by appointment only but eventually you know, once things start opening up, we'll, we'll allow walk-in traffic. Great. Well, you know what? I've always been uh, wowed by your uh, determination and your drive, and I love your work. And well, thank you. Congratulations. Thanks very much, Dean. I urge you to visit Sue's website, sueamillerart.com, or, as she suggests, on her Instagram, also sueamillerart. You can find information about Sue and the links I just mentioned on the This Here Wow podcast with Dean Holland Facebook page. Hey, while you're there, give that page a like, okay? I'd love it if you did. Hey, you know who I think is a wow? Jen Schulte, real estate broker with Century 21 Millennium Inc. Brokerage. Gotta say, I've known Jen for most of the 22 years she's been creating her top-producing Jen Schulte team right here in SGB. Both Jen and her team have a seemingly endless supply of energy, drive, and enthusiasm for anything South Georgian Bay related. Now, when I told Jen about this podcast I was launching, in no time at all, she was fully on board and wanted to become part of bringing this year wow to your ears each week. Why? Well, because both of us just know that South Georgian Bay is so very exceptional 
in so many ways. Both of us share in the mantra, SGB, the place to be. So, if you're looking to build your wealth through real estate investing, or if you're looking to buy or sell anywhere in SGB, Jen and her team will help you sell smart and buy smarter. Guaranteed. You can find her on Facebook, Instagram, or go to jenscholteteam.com. This here, wow! You'll recall that the thing that really dominated the conversation I had with artist Sue Miller was the theme of nature and how it is so inspirational to her. Of course, the various natural assets that are in such abundance here in South Georgian Bay are an integral part of why we are here, why we adore SGB as much as we do, and why so many come to visit. One of those natural assets in our area is something that I also experienced in my youth growing up in the Hamilton area, the town of Ancaster to be specific. I was a Cub Scout and then a Scout through much of the 1970s, and among the activities we would at least occasionally do was go hiking. It was then that I was introduced to something known as the Bruce Trail. In my first decade and a bit of life, it meant nothing more than a bunch of trees and trails that my cub pack would would occasionally traipse through, usually with some sort of stick in our hands. Boys like to hike with sticks in their hands. It was only years later that I realized what a tremendous asset and an incredible accomplishment in establishing it in the first place that the Bruce Trail was and is. So I reached out to SGB's local chapter of the Bruce Trail and Frank Huggins, who was kind enough to give me a bit of a tour of this trail that is absolutely a wow. So what got you involved with with, uh, Bruce Trail out here? Um, I had 25 years of skiing up here, kind of leading up to this and years of driving my kids around to ski races all over the escarpment and thinking, well, someday I'm going to have the time to check out that trail. I know it's up there somewhere. Yeah. (laughs) So when I moved here, uh, I sent in my 50 bucks and started showing up at the meeting spot and off I went. Sweet. It is one of those things that is, you know, it's up here, but not everybody knows exactly where it is or how to get there. Exactly. Uh, we were up there the other day, and what a beautiful, beautiful walk. And oh, yeah, it's a tremendous, it's a tremendous asset for the province. I think it's got a great variety of terrain, uh, and the fact that we're actually so close to the, um, to the escarpment enables us to enjoy, you know, what I call vertical changes. <laughs> so you, get, you can get some exercise uh, while you're enjoying the trail. Yes, you, you can go up, you can go down multiple times in multiple spots. But but it's also at the same time, it is suitable for, I would say when I was out there, suitable still for all types of uh, experience. Absolutely. And all ages and all abilities, because, uh, you know, you can find flat sections all over the place. And the vistas are great. Absolutely. My son has told me that apparently is the Bruce Trail have the highest elevation here in our section. Yes, that that's true. It seems odd, and it's it's kind of up here behind this uh, up behind Oser Bluff Ski Club. But you wouldn't know when you're there's a sign marking the highest spot. It is the highest spot on the Bruce Trail, but your senses would tell you would say suggest to you that this could not be the highest spot but it oh, is really? apparently is <laughs> oh, a little bit of a, an optical illusion is it there yeah because 500 yards further to the west you're actually standing um to the open vista and you, you your body feels like you're actually at a higher point of elevation but oh, apparently really? you, you are not <laughs> wow well and that really is neat because i think the bruce trail runs doesn't it run about 900 kilometers in total it's about 960 from Niagara to Tobermory. Tobermory. Wow. And a lot, a lot of people have walked the whole thing. 
Mm -hmm. I read somewhere that it takes roughly, I, I guess, you know, it depends, of course, on how much you do every day, but it takes about a month to walk the whole thing. Uh, I would say that a, a really strong hiker could do it in a month. Uh, that I'd say a, a very strong hiker. Mm -hmm. So it would take me, you're, you're telling me it would take me two months. <laughs> might, take, might take me three. <laughs> take you three okay but now the section that we have here let's let's uh let's talk about how you get there how what's the what is some of the easiest or straightforward ways to get to the sections here in the the blue mountains section the easiest way to get to the trail is to purchase a paper or online map okay that is step one okay and and the in the website which i will post what is the the website that you need to go on to uh bruce trail conservancy Okay, Bruce Trail Conservancy. So you want to get a map, and that's going to show you the whole kit and caboodle, right? Absolutely. And you can read the map from end to end or section by section or piece by piece, as you can with any map. Yeah. And if you learn how to read the map, you won't get lost. Excellent. So, so take it with you is what you're saying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> take it with you. Don't just read it and leave it in the car. Take it with you. <laughs> with COVID, there are lots of new people trying to find the trail and getting lost. Gotcha. And we don't want that. No. No. Approximately how long is the, the stretch of the Blue Mountain section? How many kilometers does that? 63 kilometers. And there has got to be a few different points that you can enter that 63 kilometers, I'm guessing. Yeah. Once you have your map and give it three minutes of study, you realize that the first thing you understand is where to park your car. Um, so once you figure out where you're going to park your car and you plan your route, you might want to do... Uh, you know, a one-way trek. So you need your, your partner's car at the other end so you don't have to come all the way back. You know, you got to plan your route, route and, and do your plan. Right, good advice. I hadn't thought of that, but that's good. You take, take a couple of cars and plan your route. So it really does seem really important to have that map. Essential. Any things as far as dress, footwear, any little good, tips good that question. you've come up with over the years? Good question. Footwear is key. Um, a lot of people think you can go out there in flip-flops, which <laughs> suggests a lack of judgment in my mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, be, be sensible. That, that, that's it. Yeah, and, and it's, not, it's not designed for cross-country skiing. Nor, nor, nor cycling. Nor cycling. What about snowshoeing? No. Yes. Yes, okay. So hiking shoes or snowshoes are both right. appropriate. And or crampons. Okay, and the markings. The markings were a throwback for me, again, to when I was a kid and I was a cub. And, and, I, and I don't think the markings have really changed over the years. They're, that, they're very distinct, kind of a, a white, just a white mark. It's called, a yeah, it's called a blaze. Um, the white blazes are the main trail that run the 960K. And the blue blazes are side trails, which have been created over the years to provide alternatives. And in some cases, provide loop opportunities so you don't have to do a, what we call a yo-yo, okay. which is out, an out and in. Yeah, we did a yo-yo the other day. Yeah, that's we uh, we all went in. We we yeah. So we saw it. We saw the trail from two different angles. I guess it were right. Well, yeah. There's a lot to be said for that because it's two different views. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you're getting there, Dean. But I know you want to ask me questions about well, how how does this thing sustain itself? <laughs> that's that's what I want to know. Tell me how it sustains itself. Okay, fifteen hundred gray-haired volunteers. Fifteen hundred. Yep, from top from Niagara to Tobermory. It's a silver-haired army, and wow. I'm one of I'm one of them. And this army, what does it uh, what does it do? Okay, so it basically, it does a whole bunch of things, but the the thrust is trail maintenance. 
Okay. I mean, the pioneers that created the trail 60 years ago, you know, deserve fabulous kudos for what they've created and the legacy that's there. Uh, but like anything else, it needs care and nurturing. So I have a little tiny volunteer job called trail captain, and I have 14 other pe- 1,400 peers up and down the trail. So I look after four kilometers of the trail right here in our section. Okay. And I'm looking after the blazes, making sure they're properly maintained. And I'm out there with my paint can every spring. I'm out there once a month, making sure the trail is clear um, because trees fall down and windstorms come up and create Mm -hmm. problems. And we have volunteer teams that look after those things. We have counterparts called trail stewards, which liaise with the property owners to make sure that everything's copacetic and peace and love transcends the trail. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we're on uh, provincial park property. Sometimes we're on county land. Sometimes we're on private property. Sometimes we're on trail that the, uh, the trail is actually purchased and owns. Um, so you need these volunteers to keep the whole thing rolling. You reminded me of something that I think is important to, to point out. As I understand it, staying on the trails because, and, and respecting the trails and not you know, taking out uh, with you what you brought in. Because as you pointed out, you know, some of this, some of this land uh, is, is being, is on private land that those uh, landowners have been kind enough over the years to allow the trail to go through. Absolutely. Hopefully people are applying large doses of common sense and respecting what's going on. You know, I think it's tremendous. The trail, both what the pioneers have done, what your army that you refer to continues to do. And uh, we are really, really very fortunate uh, in in our area uh, to have the uh, the Bruce Trail running through it and and having that as a wonderful option uh, right now and all year round. Absolutely. Uh, to get out Absolutely. and do something active and enjoy that natural beauty. Yeah. Now I should add, of course, in addition to this volunteer army, there is a core of paid professionals at the Conservancy head office down in the Hamilton area mm-hmm. um, that kind of, you know, <laughs> provide the necessary uh, framework and guidance for us to make this whole thing work. Sure, of course. I think you do need that. You do need that core of people. Yeah. Are, yeah, for sure. Right. But still, not to take away from what you and uh, and your local chapter does, which is... Which right. Is so, yeah. So, there, so there's nine sections up and down, and each section has a board of directors and a volunteer service corps. Um, and, you know, there are people investing hundreds and hundreds of man hours to keep it all rolling. Great. Well, I hope that, uh, that as many people as can uses the Bruce Trail and uh, gets out there, again, especially with the current state of affairs. You know, uh, if you haven't done it before, a great, great reason to uh, put on your sensible shoes and sensible <laughs> and, and sensible footwear and, and, and clothing and get out there and enjoy that, uh, that outdoors. And, you know, for sure what you are doing and the Bruce trail in this area certainly is a wow for this area. We're very, very lucky to have you. And, and thanks so much for chatting with me. Well, I, I want to say there's, there's many, many people here doing way more than me. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful asset. It's right here in our backyard and it's there for everyone to enjoy. Fabulous. Thanks so much, Frank. Okay, Dean. All the best. Many thanks to Frank Huggins, as well as the army he mentioned, all those dedicated volunteers who give sizable chunks of time and effort so that the Bruce Trail continues to be there for so many of us to enjoy.
I've posted a few of those photos of that recent Bruce Trail walk I did with my family, as well as the link you need to find out more information on all the things that Frank and I chatted about. Just go to my Facebook page, This Here Wild Podcast with Dean Holland. Okay, time for me to thank all my guests for being part of this week's episode of This Here Wow. How I appreciate the time they took to chat with me, and even more, for being part of the rather exceptional landscape of SGB. Thanks so much to all of you. We are very lucky, aren't we, you and I, to be able to be here in that exceptional landscape. Of course, I'll have an entirely different bunch of wows to bring your way next week. There's no shortage of them in SGB, I guarantee you that. Now, if you have any questions or comments, or perhaps there's a wow that you think should be on my radar, please send me an email. Dean at thisherewow.com will get the job done nicely. You can also go to my website, deanholland.com. That's Dean, H-O-L-L-I-N.com. And I would love to hear from you. Thank you so much to the Jen Schulte team. Jen Schulte, real estate broker with Century 21, Millennium Inc. Brokerage. Go to jenschulteteam.com. Thanks also to my technical producer, Ben McCulley, for cutting and pasting the show together so nicely each week. Thanks also to my favorite IT guy, Mitchell. Special thanks to Ash and love to G. And a really big thanks to you too. I look forward to us being together again next week for another installment of This Here Wow. Until then, I'm Dean Holland. This here, this here, this here, wow.